Hi, friends. Just a quick note before this week's episode kicks off. We had some very frustrating audio issues. I don't know what happened exactly. It's got some distortion happening, uh, but uh, I've cleaned it up as best I can. It doesn't sound that bad. It's totally listenable, and this is a really great conversation. But yes, very frustrating way to kick off our Harley and Ivy series. So bear with us, but you're going to love this episode. Trust me. You are now in session with the Comic Book Couples Counseling Podcast. I'm Lisa Gullickson. I'm Brad Gullickson. And each month we evaluate a different iconic romance within the four-color realm. This month we're feeling particularly villainous as we discuss the joyously devious coupling of Harley Quinn and Poison Ivy from the DC Comics universe. And we're applying Things You Should Already Know About Dating, You Blanking Idiot by Ben Schwartz and Laura Moses to their relationship woes. Comics, 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 can't you see? Sometimes your words just hypnotize me. Brad and I are constantly <laughs> singing things uh, in the in the tune to Biggie Smalls, Hypnotize. Yeah. And it's literally for the whitest reason possible. <laughs> Um, Josh Gondelman, uh, who is a stand-up comedian that I love, he's literally the most adorable comedian ever. And I think it's 100% because he comes from an education background. He used to be a preschool teacher. I didn't know that. Yeah, I know. It's so sweet. And um, his first album is all about that. But this album, Dancing on a Weeknight, uh, which came out, I don't know when. A while ago. A while ago, but not too long. But it is his latest album. Um, he he mostly talks about his home life with his wife and his dog, Busy. And so on one of the tracks, he sings about his little pug. And he sings, Busy, 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 Can't You See? Sometimes your snow just hypnotize me. And I had literally never heard the the, the hypnotize, yeah. but I uh, started. I started singing to Brad. I would say, I would say, Braddy, 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 can't you see? And then I would say, sometimes your hips. I don't know why his yeah. hips. Sometimes your hips just hypnotize me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And now it's an earworm, and I've been saying it all week long. And and you know, this week, all that's been getting me through have have been comic books. Right? Oh yeah. And so oh, I've been thinking, absolutely. comics, comics, comics. Can't you see? Sometimes your words just hypnotize me. Like I'm obsessing of comic books in a way that I've never obsessed with comic books before. And that's saying something because we have a comic book couples counseling podcast. I think part of it is because we can't go to the movie theater. Right. And, and we can't go to the comic book store. And we can't go to the comic book store. But sitting at home and watching a movie as fun as it is it's kind of just reminds you that you're not at the movie theater. That's true. That's true. And it's. It, like, it's just kind of bums me out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But we have been reading more comics than ever because of this. And I know that you read a book this week that you that really adored. And I read a book that I really adored. Let's start with you. What's the, what's the book that, what's your heart book for the week? 
I read Stargazing by Jen Wang, and I literally just fell in love with this book. This is another book by First Second. The best. I... I became aware of First Second through Bloom. I actually have a Wikipedia list of all of the books published by First Second. And I have I had actually read some of the books previously. Oh, like, like what? Like Boxers and Saints. Oh, so good. I love that mm-hmm. that set of books. Um Sailor Twain, that book was an experience. It's okay, it's okay. It was it caused a major Fight. Unhealed <laughs> rift in our book club. Yeah, it sure did. <laughs> from which we never fully recovered. No, RIP to that book club. Eight years and dead. <laughs> <laughs> but following Bloom, I just started going after their young adult. And this is technically one of their kids' books, though I felt like I got a lot out of it as well. But I, I read uh, Laura Dean Keeps Breaking Up With Me. Uh, Tilly Walden, um, that one we read. Oh, on a Sunbeam. On a Sunbeam is first, so second good. book. So good. Um, so I've just been devouring those books. But Stargazing, I just found really, really special. It's about this Chinese-American kid who is growing up in kind of a stereotypical Chinese-American home Uh, really academically-minded, conservative parents. Uh, She plays the violin. She takes Chinese lessons after school. And then uh, at church, uh, she sees this girl, Moon. And Moon has sort of a different reputation, which both frightened and intrigued her because Moon was the daughter of a single mother, and uh, who owned a, a nursery, like a for plants, not for like baby oh, people, got it. Okay. <laughs> like a plant nursery. They were financially struggling. So Christine's family clears out the space where her grandparent was living and had since passed away so that Moon could live with them and they could be neighbors. And at first, Christine is reluctant. But then she starts to get a glimpse into Moon's family and they create this kinship based on like their shared experience of both being children of Chinese immigrants. But they're very, very different experiences in that Moon is being raised in a Buddhist household as opposed to a Christian household. Her parent is much more permissive. She is interested in K-pop and... Uh, she loves to draw. I don't want to spoil this book because I went into this book knowing very little, but, uh, something happens to Moon that I found very emotional and it brings these two girls a little bit closer than they had been before. And it's something that, altered the way moon had seen the world in this unique way that made her think that she was extraordinary. And after this thing happens, some of that extraordinariness, that, that extraordinary perspective is taken away from her. Mm. I'm being very, yeah, don't cryptic. spoil it. Don't spoil it. I'm being, I very, read it yet. I'm being very cryptic, but that idea moved me so much. Well, when you finished the book, you were in tears last night. 
And they were not sad, devastated, everybody dies at the end tears. They were, isn't the world a beautiful place kind of tears. At the end of the book, you turn the page. And this is not an autobiographical book. Obviously, Jen Wang does write from her own experience of being a child of immigrants. Um, But she shares a lot in common with Moon, and she actually shares the experience that I'm speaking around. Okay, okay, all right, all right. With Moon, and when I turned the page and saw a picture of little baby Jen Wang, it just... Destroyed you. Destroyed me. It destroyed me (laughs) in in the best way way possible. I love this book. I cannot recommend it enough. And it's it's the kind of book where I just want to put it in the hands of young people, my nieces and nephews. Yeah, I just, I really love this book. Well, I didn't read a book that uh, profoundly moved me in that fashion, but I did read a book that I was truly like flabbergasted with how much I enjoyed it. I, I had a feeling I was going to like it, but I didn't realize I, I was going to like it as much as I did. And it is a superhero comic. Uh, and it is Batman universe from yes. Brian Michael Bendis. You and have been Nick loving Darrington. this book. He uh, has added it to my to read. Stack, yeah. I want, and I I want you to read to it. I want you to read it. You know, like Batman is a character who has been seen uh, through many lenses. And that's one of the appeals of that character to me. Like when people go like, oh, who's your favorite Batman? Is it Michael Keaton or is it uh, Christian Bale or is it, you know, Jim Aparo or is it Frank Miller? I go, it's all of them. All Batman are valid. That's what I like about Batman. Mm -hmm. I I like the varied uh, iterations of the character. And what Batman universe is, is a celebration less of Batman and more of the DC universe. It was written to be part of that whole Walmart uh, giant size uh, comics that DC was uh, putting into stores not too long ago. And it took forever to be collected, but it's now finally here and it's absolutely gorgeous. It involves uh, Bruce Wayne tracking down the Riddler who has stolen a Fabergé egg. And in the pursuit of that Fabergé egg, it brings him into contact with Deathstroke the Terminator and the Green Lantern Corps and Jonah Hex. Oh, wow. And Vandal Savage and, you know, Cyborg and Green Arrow. Like, it, it is like a Justice League book as much as anything, the constant being Batman's POV. But Nick Darrington's art is unbelievable. He's got to be one of my all-time favorite Batman artists now. I desperately want him... Uh, to get his specific design of Batman as a Batman black and white statue to add with our collection. Uh, I, I just think he's he has a stunning figure. And there's one particular page turn. Uh, when it happens, it's like a punch in the face, but like a good punch in the face. You know, you're talking about happy tears. Yeah. This is a good punch <laughs> in the face. Uh, so Batman Universe is like the Batman book that I'm going to be putting into people's hands when they say like, oh, I want to try Batman. Uh, or I want to try superhero comics because so often with that character, people go back to the staples of the Dark Knight Returns, the Killing Joke, the Long Halloween, Dark Victory, Arkham Asylum, Hush. Like those are all great comics. Black Mirror, Court of Owls. Those are all great Batman comics. But I, I'm more interested in exploring, you know, these other places that aren't as celebrated. And Batman Universe might one day get up to the heights of an Arkham Asylum. I don't, I don't necessarily think so because it doesn't have maybe the uh, emotional depth that Arkham Asylum does. 
but it is a great fun Batman comic and it's the best Batman comic I've read in a long, long time. Uh, you know, I've enjoyed Scott Snyder's run, uh, here and there. I've enjoyed Tom King's run here and there. Uh, but this is like a pure six issues. It's beautiful. It's a hardcover. Go get it. Awesome. The reason we're celebrating these comics, of course, is because, you know, you've heard the news. Diamond distributors, they're shutting down shipments. Uh, there's no new comic books coming out this Wednesday. Uh, and, and we're still waiting for word or at least a proper word from Marvel Comics and DC Comics as to how they're going to help the direct market. Uh, you know, both have issued initial responses, but those responses leave a lot to be desired. Uh, it's a topic that Lisa and I have been talking about a lot lately. We're very concerned about our local shops. We want to find ways to help them. They've become a staple in our life. Right. Absolutely. Absolutely. And if you want to really be kept abreast of what's going on regarding Diamond and Marvel and DC and all the other publishers, I encourage you all to go and listen to the most recent episodes of the Off Panel podcast, as well as our pals over at the Amazing Spider Talk podcast. Some great retailer interviews are happening over there, and they are incredibly informative. But here's the gist, right? We need to help our shops, Lisa. Yes. Uh, you know, how can we do that? Uh, obviously, you spend money at our shops even as their doors are closed. Uh, granted, our own money and your money might be hard to come by right now and maybe even more hard to come by in the near future. But if you can spend a little, please do so. So here's what we're doing. We reached out to the owners and friends of ours of Big Planet Comics and uh, Four Color Fantasies in Winchester, Virginia. And we said, you have our credit card information. Please charge us 50 bucks every Wednesday and then fill a box with $50 worth of merchandise. We don't care what it is. We, tr we know them. We trust their recommendations. They also know us. So yeah. they kind of know what our deal is. Just throw it in a box and then... We'll receive those boxes, and then we'll do unboxings, yeah, yeah. which Brad loves to do. <laughs> Unboxing on our Twitter, Facebook, wherever we can throw up this stuff as a way to, one, get new books. Because it's so easy to go kind of down your niche. Sure, yeah, yeah. And it's yeah. fun to diversify your interests, um, but also help these stories, which we love. And then whatever doubles we get of stuff either we already own or maybe they somehow, like both Four Color Fantasies and Big Planet sends us the same book, we're going to just... Uh, Give those out yeah, to CB CBCC listeners. Yeah. So. so pay attention to our Twitter feed, CBCC podcast. Uh, and, you know, we're just going to randomly select people who respond to those unboxing videos with any doubles and we'll send you the doubles. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I, like I'm excited about that. Uh, and, and I want to help out as much as we can for as long as we can. Right. Yeah. And hopefully Marvel and DC will figure something out. Maybe we'll break up this diamond monopoly that they've got going on with uh, their distribution system. It, it's, well, nuts. it's definitely showing a hiccup in the system. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but DC has started kind of like lightly going like we would love to have another way to distribute our floppies yeah, right but we don't know what that is yet. yeah and yeah digital sales that are going to happen this wednesday don't help 
the direct market. They keep our creators creating and our publishers publishing. Which but, is awesome. Which is awesome. But they don't help Big Planet Comics. They don't help Four Color Fantasies. Uh, so there you go. Now let's talk Harley and Ivy. Yes, we've completed our epic run with Rogue and Gambit, and it's time to move on to a new couple and a different comic book universe. For all of you that joined us for Mr. and Mrs. X and are sticking with us through this couple change, we salute you. Thank you so much for joining us on every episode. We freaking love you guys. Every couple has their following, but the Rogue and Gambit peeps... I feel like they're my peeps. They're hardcore. They're hardcore. Uh, but I think that the Harley and Ivy crew are going to really show up for this series as well. We've already tweeted a few things and had uh, some intense responses to those tweets. But I appreciate that. And I'm looking forward to continuing the conversation with the Harley and Ivy crew. The original plan was to cover this couple when Birds of Prey was initially released in theaters. But then life got wild and Rogan Gambit took over. Hey, it's okay because Birds of Prey just dropped on digital and clearly there is still a lot of fervor out there for the character. Now, what I loved most about the movie, Lisa, and I think you would agree with me, is how it removed Harley Quinn from the shadow of the Joker. Absolutely. It was like his name was like Fairboten. Like he had an effect on her life, but she was still her own woman and she was going to find her own weird, kooky way. Yeah, you know, like when we initially discussed covering Harley on the show sometime last year, we briefly considered a series of episodes around the Mr. J relationship, but frankly, the way their story is often told frustrates me and even downright upsets me. The romance is often ugly, and I'm not in a place right now for that kind of conversation. No, no. No. <laughs> On the other hand, the relationship between Harley and Ivy has always intrigued me and brought a smile to my face. You know, and, and, and Lisa, like prior to reading uh, this Batman Harley and Ivy graphic novel, what was your relationship with either character? Obviously, you'd seen the movie. I'd seen the movie. Mostly I had seen the cosplay at conventions and I had seen her pop up in the animated series. Sure. But I I was not, I was certainly not an avid watcher of the animated series when it was on television. So I've seen a couple episodes here and there after we've been married in the background while I'm doing other things. Sure. And you have, you did not grow up a Batman fanatic the way that I did. Well, I, I really wasn't exposed to any Batman things. I was not allowed to watch cartoons on any day right. but weekdays. And um, superhero cartoons seemed not funny. And I was mostly interested in funny cartoons. <laughs> Animaniacs. I loved Animaniacs. I was a huge Garfield fan, which makes me weird, see sound weird. really not yeah, cool. No. <laughs> Uh, I had a, a Garfield alarm clock. Wow, that's I never liked Garfield. Never liked Garfield. I know Garfield. we've talked about uh, it. I now I read a lot of Batman comics as a kid. Um, you know, he and Superman were really the only DC books that I devoured, but mostly centered around all that silliness in the '90s with Batman getting his back broken by Bane and Doomsday annihilating Superman. Uh, but that that's really it. You know, like Poison Ivy would appear here and there, but I never gravitated 
gravitated towards her stories. On the other hand, around that same time, I was watching the Batman the animated series that Lisa was not allowed to, <laughs> and I was deeply in love with that show, and I still adore it. However, even back then, the relationship between Harley Quinn and the Joker disturbed me. I never found him to be a fun bad guy. I always found him to be too scary. Even when he was much more comical, as he is in the form of Cesar Romero in the 66 TV series, or Mark Hamill, I, it just it just creeped me out. Yeah. And then, you know, Harley Quinn, I liked, but I wanted her to get away from the Joker. I really, really did. And as she was integrated into the comics, I would encounter her here and there, but I never read her monthly titles, and only recently have I started reading the comics featuring her as a focus. I love the recent uh, Mariko Tamaki young adult book uh, that came out not too long ago featuring Harley Quinn. It's really, really good. Steve Pugh's arts in it is fantastic. I should read that. I, I think you'd like it. Uh, but just like with Rogue and Gambit, uh, these episodes are going to be a journey of discovery for both Lisa and I. And yeah, those are always my favorite episodes to do. But Brad, yeah. what are the origins of these two characters specifically? Uh, sure, sure. So, you know, Poison Ivy, she came first. Her first appearance was in Batman number 181, written by Robert Kaniger, illustrated by Sheldon Molden and published in June of 1966, the same year of the television series. I love the cover by Carmen Infantino, Murphy Anderson, and Ira Schnapp. It features two large profiles of Batman and Robin with Ivy standing in the middle, and the caption reads, Trouble between the dynamic duo? Dot, dot, dot. Is she the cause? With this big arrow pointing to Ivy. Spoilers, uh, she's not. Yeah, no. <laughs> uh, the story involves Poison Ivy storming a Gotham art gallery exhibiting portraits of Batman's greatest female rogues, uh, characters like Dragonfly, Silken Spider, and Tiger Moth. Poison Ivy rejects their inclusion, stating she's Batman's greatest female foe. Despite never being in the comics before. Correct. <laughs> uh, Batman is apparently smitten with Ivy, and Robin is deeply concerned. When the duo go after her, Ivy attempts to woo Batman, but he snaps out of it, and the comic ends with Ivy in handcuffs. Partnership saved. Woo. Yeah. What a her, relief. What a relief. Her power set and appearance has slightly altered over time, pre-crisis, post-crisis, New 52, Rebirth, and all that DC wackiness. But basically, Pamela Isley was a botanist and a biochemist who either, due to experimentation or a poisonous murder attempt, gained the ability to secrete floral toxins and mind-controlling pheromones. She has an immunity to most poisons and pathogens, and she can mentally control the growth of plants thanks to her connection to the green. What? Yeah, that's right, Lisa. She and Swamp Thing are tight like that. That's so cool. Now, Harley Quinn's first appearance did come much later and happened in an entirely different medium. She was introduced during the 22nd episode of the first season of Batman the Animated Series entitled Joker's Favor, which aired on September 11th of 1992. Never forget. Never forget. <laughs> and is credited to writer-producer Paul Dini and artist-producer Bruce Timm which Lisa and I also just rewatched. We did. Had a lot of fun with it. Yeah. Uh, she was created basically because in the original concept, Joker jumped out of this novelty cake delivered to the Gotham City Police Department when they were celebrating the life and career of Gordon. Some suit somewhere was like, it's not appropriate for Joker to jump out of the cake. We need a female character. And that was the impetus of the Harley Quinn idea. But then they went ahead and put Joker in that cake because that suit is obviously a sexist idiot. 
Uh, that's bizarre to me. So strange. Uh, but w- what began as a walk-on role developed into a franchise unto herself. Diddy and Tim basically fell in love with the character. Uh, their Mad Love graphic novel, published in 1994, revealed Harley's origin as Dr. Harleen Francis Quinzel, the Arkham Asylum psychologist assigned to the Joker. During their sessions together, she fell hard for her criminal patient and eventually aided him as an accomplice. In 1999, the new adventures of Batman cartoon series would adapt that graphic novel. We also watched that. Yeah, we did. I love that they're both scientists. Oh, Harley and uh, Isley. Yeah, 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 yeah. Smart ladies. She was finally incorporated into the regular DC Comics universe with the No Man's Land tie-in graphic novel, Batman Harley Quinn, which was also written by Paul Denny. Since then, the character has grown exponentially, and the character we see in the comics today is certainly far removed from how she first entered the DC Comics universe or the animated series. But the same thing could be said for Poison Ivy and every other comic book character that has lasted beyond multiple decades. That's the beauty and the frustration of comics, man. Uh, Your favorite version of the character will never remain. Change is a constant. What do you think would be a gender-appropriate food for a man to pop out of? Oh, uh, a gender-appropriate food? Like a big chunk of steak. (laughs) (laughs) Gross. Mashed potatoes. Yeah, mashed potatoes. I just imagine uh, um, the Joker slowly rolling out of a burger. (laughs) Like underneath the bread and stuff. Oh, gosh. So when did Harley and Ivy become a thing? Well, again, like, they first clicked in the animated series, and in particular the first season episode, Harley and Ivy, where Harley helps Ivy out while she's robbing toxins from the Natural History Museum while Harley is robbing a big old diamond. What a coincidence. Uh, The more romantic undertones of the relationship really didn't start to get pushed until the new 52, as well as the Elseworld realms of the Injustice and Bombshells comics. Uh, In 2015, the DC Comics official Twitter account acknowledged them as girlfriends without the jealousy of monogamy. How modern. Uh, Referring specifically to how they were portrayed in Jimmy Palamiotti's and Amanda Connor's New 52 series. Cool. I don't want to get too far down the rabbit hole here, and we're going to jump around all over the place with these two. We're going to start with the earliest pairing as seen in the animated series spinoff comic of Batman Adventures, but we'll hop around the main DCU after this week's episode. And that's what I'm super excited to get to. Yeah, same, same, same. Uh, You know, so, okay. I also want to talk about our relationship gurus, Lisa. Mm -hmm. As we mentioned last week, we're trying a pretty kooky book uh, for our guide. Um, Lisa, I know you've read it, and I'm very curious to get your opinion on it, but uh, how are we going to incorporate... The thing you should already know about dating, you effing idiot. Oh, man, Brad. Mm -hmm. That is the book that I announced last week. It is. And I did read it. Yes. It is a book for millennials who have mastered the -the over-the-phone flirt through the use of memes and emojis, (laughs) but utterly fail when it comes to dating IRL. I guess overexposure to cat memes quashes all common sense. (laughs) This is a quote from the introduction. We live in a world where it's become easier to have a relationship over the phone than in person. Common courtesies have been replaced by emojis and feelings are now expressed through gifts and memes. 
So it's not a shock that you didn't know that you're supposed to walk your date to their car, you effing idiot. <laughs> this book is made up of 100 tips intended to guide you through getting the date, going on the date, and what to do on the date, all the way to being in a committed relationship. I chose this book because I wanted something hip to go with Harley and Ivy, and because I Love Ben Schwartz. He's the best. Uh, he is amazing. You may know Ben Schwartz, the actor and comedy improviser, as John Ralphio from Parks and Rec. He's Dewey the Duck in DuckTales. He's yeah. Leonardo on Rise of the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. Yeah. And he was Sonic in the recent Sonic the Hedgehog movie. It's not bad. I became smitten with him when he guested on the improvised comedy podcast, Comedy Bang Bang with Scott Ackerman. They would do episodes, just two dudes doing what they call solo bolo, where they just riff and make jokes. And and um, Ben Schwartz loves to like burst into song and so does Scott Ackerman. So they're harmonizing and it is just so fun. And, I, and I've just loved watching him pop up and stuff ever Ackerman since. Ackerman was just on AIPT. He did an X-Men Monday. Very Which cool. Which is super cool. What a great reason to interrupt your wife. Sorry, sorry. I'm just excited <laughs> about uh, that we're tangentially connected to Scott Ackerman and therefore Ben Schwartz. We we actually walked right past Scott Ackerman when we were in L.A. for oh, yeah. Comic-Con because we were seeing a show at the UCB. That's and right. he was leaving. And I, I totally made the, like, <gasps> face. <laughs> like Celebrity. Just, and he totally saw me recognize him. It was very... <laughs> I mean, to me, it was awkward. I'm sure he immediately forgot. <laughs> ben Schwartz recently did a remote interview with Pete Holmes on his podcast, You Made It Weird. And it's just a reminder of what a super positive person Ben Schwartz is and a total, total delight. This book is also written by Laura Moses, who I don't, I don't know anything about. She's a television writer who wrote Married on FX. That's a thing. I guess. I, I've never seen it. Um, Same. Any whoozles. I have regrets. I have regrets <laughs> for picking this book. The main reason being that it's super short. Uh -huh, uh -huh, so uh -huh. I picked it blind just on the name recognition yeah, of, hey, bitch, we were excited. And I bought it on my iPad and I was like, bye, Brad. Don't disturb me for many hours because yep, I have yep. this relationship book to read. And I shut the door and I had read the whole thing in literally less than an hour. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's just a list of rules followed by a four to six line, uh, like mini script between a guy and a girl. Zero research and very little thought went into this book. <laughs> I'm pretty sure that it was just rift between Schwartz and Moses in an afternoon. Mm. I also didn't find the insights particularly revelatory. I mean, I'm not the audience because... My dating, like I got my first flip phone when I was 21 years old. Mm -hmm. So I know how to not be a monster <laughs> when I'm out, I guess. But I just don't think this book is going to generate a lot of insightful conversation. The most disappointing aspect is that this book is extraordinarily heteronormative. There is not even a passing acknowledgement that there may be a dating situation with two people of the same gender identity let alone any kind of spectrum of genders. I don't blame Schwartz and Moses for writing a book for straight dating because I presume that this is their experience since they were not planning to do any research. That's all they had to go on. But it seems 
extremely tone deaf to not acknowledge that queer dating exists. Yeah, and wouldn't be good for us considering who we're covering We've, this month. We did that with our with other couples, though. We go like, ah, you know, this. Even though sure, this piece of advice sure. is to a straight couple, you can like cross apply it because we're all human beings. Of course, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, this book isn't even that old. It came out in 2017. It just seems thoughtless to me, which is the bottom line. Mm-hmm. Like not a lot of thought or time went into this book, so it's not suitable for this particular podcast. Okay. That being said, there were a couple of tips I thought we could discuss and maybe apply to Harley and Ivy. We'll give it a go. And at the end of this podcast, I'll announce a new love guru All right. and relationship book for this couple. And I'll probably profusely apologize. Yeah. Okay. All right. That sounds good. That for making sense. a bad that, call. Hey, you know, it happens. We were excited by those people. We like Ben Schwartz. We want him to succeed and we want to support him and his comedy, but maybe he shouldn't be our guru. Yeah. No, no. I, I, I've never heard him talk about this book. Maybe he's not particularly proud or maybe he forgot that he wrote it. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's see what we can do with it uh, this week, at least on this episode. Okay, well, the first rule I want to discuss comes from chapter one, before the date. This is number two. When you're asking someone out, be clear that it's a date. Here's the little scriptlet that comes with this particular rule. Brad, you play the girl. I'll play the guy. I can do it. Want to come over and chill? What does that mean? Oh, you know, chill... Chill could mean anything. Am I coming over to watch cat videos or am I coming over to plow? Wow. Um, both. (laughs) (laughs) First, I generally think that this is pretty good advice to be clear that it's a date. But you regardless, you shouldn't go to somebody's house to watch cat videos on the first date, especially if you're not sure that you're dating. Yeah. Yeah. Agreed. A thousand percent. A movie. Right. But I do think that it's okay to have some not dates where you're first trying to figure out if you're romantically interested in someone. Again, not to your house or not to their home. But on those like non-dates or pre-dates, you shouldn't make any sexual or romantic moves on them. Would you consider our first pseudo date at the Cheesecake Factory to that, apply to this? I think absolutely. Yeah. That's what I had in mind. Mm-hmm. Where um, Brad and I had hung out in group situations a lot when we were both working at Barnes & Noble. But we wanted to see if we wanted to date each other. Um, Brad needed new glasses. I volunteered to help him pick out his new glasses. And we met at the mall, picked out glasses, and... Uh, went and had lunch together and... And then shared an awkward hug at the end. Because we were friends and it was not a sexual move. We just shared a hug. But after that, we were like, yeah, okay, we we do want to date. So I think that is a good idea to figure out. Because sometimes you hang out with someone or you're vaguely interested in someone. You go out on a date and you find out, oh, no, we're just friends. Or that this person isn't at all compatible with me in any regard and the opinions in their head are crazy. Right, right. Well, obviously, but that can happen on a date or a non-date. Sure, sure, sure. Rule number seven, make a reservation 
you might as well. It doesn't cost any money. Mm-hmm. And this is something I greatly believe in. I like to call ahead and make a reservation at a restaurant if it's where I, if I know it's where I want to go. Sometimes Brad is a little resistant. Uh, I, I'm a, I like spontaneity. So I just like, yeah, well, if we go to Seasons 52 and it's full, we'll then jump on over to Panera Bread. Right. But <laughs> to me, like, if we know where we're, we want to go, then we might as well just make a reservation. Yeah, that's the guy in the sketch says it's embarrassing to have a reservation at an empty restaurant. Is that true? Uh, I mean, not for me. I love an empty restaurant. Yeah, but like to go up and go like, hey, table of one. And they're like, literally, you can sit anywhere or table of two. Uh, I mean, maybe if your ego is weak, Ben Schwartz, but not <laughs> for me. I have no problem with that. Uh, well, but Ben Schwartz is saying you should make a reservation. Yeah, yeah, I agree. Okay. Number 15. If you're a guy on a date with a girl, you're paying at least for the first date. What do you think of that? Role? I mean, that's what uh, my father taught me and uh, culture taught him. And that is something that I did at that Cheesecake Factory date. Yes, you did. I straight up disagree with this I know. rule. And I think I do now, too, as well. I think, well, the thing is, you invited me right. to go pick out the glasses. I think the person who asked for the date pays for that date, for the first date. And if your date goes for their wallet, that's what you tell them. Hey, I invited you out, so I am paying. I like the logic of that. Early dating, I think it's best to alternate the dating, the paying, and the asking. Right, so that you don't have, like, a power imbalance. Right, and then you get the, like, thing of, okay, well, there's, I took them out on a date. They're interested in seeing me again. They're inviting me out on a date. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And once you are in a relationship, then you just do whatever works best for you. I was briefly in a relationship in college um, where we would go Dutch all of the time, where he would just pay for himself and I would pay for myself. And I'm not really into that. Like, I would much rather alternate. But maybe if there's some kind of, like, one person is out of a job and one person has a job, uh, like, to me, I find it reasonable for the person. I I, I think it depends on the couple. I don't think there's a general rule in this situation. Yeah, once you're in a relationship, then you decide the rules. But I think in dating, I think it's most polite to just alternate. There are a lot of tips in this first chapter that are just, like, don't be an a-hole tips. (laughs) And, uh, like, ones like, be patient when waiting for a check. Be kind to the wait staff. Don't only talk about yourself or your ex. And to me, I'm like, don't give that advice. Because if the person I'm going on a date with is a jerk, I want to know that up front. I don't want them to be following all of these dating rules mm. and then all of a sudden reveal themselves once they've got me. <laughs> reveal themselves to be a monster. Sure, sure, sure. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Here's some rules from chapter two after the date. Offer to walk your date to the car, subway, hoverboard after the date. Oh, man, I did not consider hoverboards. Yeah, I know. They predicted some things about the future. Yeah, oh, boy. In the sketch, uh, the girl is like, people are crazy. The world is one big horror movie. Walk me to my car, you effing idiot. I think that the person who is more likely to be victimized gets walked to their car. Sure. I I mean, I, yeah, yeah. Uh, again, I agree with that uh, big time. Yeah. Um, gentlemen, wait for your date's Uber. So this is number 23. Gentlemen, wait for your date's Uber to arrive before leaving in yours. 
Yeah, I think that's this is this is all making sense to me. To me, that was not an issue when we were dating. We no. were not using. We we live in the suburbs anyway, so we're always going to have cars. But I say yes to this yeah, rule right, as yeah. well. I would say the rule is the person who is more likely to be victimized gets their rideshare first. If people are both equally <laughs> victims in the victim department, either share the car or the asker waits. So mm. it goes falls back on, are you the host of this date? Mm. I would also say the asker sh- should pay for the other person's ride share if they can swing it. Yeah, I mean, dating now, there's so many like additional costs you got to think about, I guess. And they can be really pricey. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, don't just go to their house. Right, right, right. That and, is not safe. And, and falling back on the asker, I think that's, again, logical. Yeah. Chapter four, texting, apps, and other intimacy-killing technology. Number 35, ask before posting a photo of the two of you together. I think this goes for whomever you're with. Even if you're hanging out with a friend, ask before you post their picture. Uh, yeah. Number 39, Reply to texts in a non-a-hole amount of time. <laughs> I'm awful with this, even with people I like. Uh, or married to. Yeah, I, I like to let them simmer. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know why. Uh, number 43, do not send nude pics unless you're prepared for the consequences. Yep. I would say don't send nude pics without consent. Uh, like, just yes. ask. Do yeah. you, you want to see it? Yeah, do you want to see it? Don't uh, surprise. Like, yeah. that's, that's not a kind surprise. Chapter six, relationship stuff. Number 63, when you decide to be exclusive, deactivate your dating apps and accounts. Oh my God, yes. Duh. Number 70, don't be a ghost, be a person. I say, if, you, if you've gone on one or two dates and come to the conclusion that the other person is a bad person, you may ghost. If you go on one date with somebody, you don't owe them any, Lock anything. Lock it down. Yeah. You know, change your change your locks, change your phone numbers, change your emails. You may ghost. Yeah. You may ghost monsters. Number 71, don't break up over text. I have broken up with people over text. One person, and it was because they were being insufferable over text, and I had to draw a line. Like, I was like, over text, I was like, if you're going to be like this, we shouldn't see each other anymore. And then we didn't. I'm glad. I think they were specifically being insufferable to get me to break up with them, which is bizarre behavior. Uh, A-hole behavior. But remember, I was doing this on a flip phone, too. (laughs) So, like, to to type certain letters, you had to hit a button, like, three to nine times. Right, you had to scroll through the letters. So, effort-wise, I feel like, in the past, it it was acceptable (laughs) to to break up with someone over text because it was way harder. Okay, sure. Well, I'm glad you did it. I don't think you should make a date to break up with someone, though. Like, if you're going to break up, I don't care how long you've been in a relationship, you shouldn't break up with someone in a restaurant or a public place where they would feel weird if they cried. So hold on. If you don't want to break up via text or email or FaceTime or whatever, and you do want to do it in person, but you don't want to do it in a restaurant or a movie theater or whatever, where do you do it? I say if you are at being at each other's homes level of the relationship, like if you're already in a place where you guys are hanging at each other's places, I would say go to their home. And you feel safe. And you feel safe. Go to their home. Um, otherwise, break up over the phone. 
Over the phone's okay. Yeah, I would say just give them a call. Because what you don't want is to put a person in a place where they feel like they can't express their feelings without maybe causing a scene or being embarrassed. Mm -hmm. I think it's bad enough that you're dumping somebody that they don't need a public humiliation Okay. Yeah. as well. Chapter 7, Living Spaces. Uh, rule number 76, have an extra towel for them. I say have two extra towels for them because I'm a person with a lot of hair. Like yeah. I have, and especially when I was dating, I kept my hair long. So one towel does not cut it. Plus, it seems like a way better host situation where you're like, not only do I have the bare essentials of what you need, I have an abundance of what you need. I did not learn this until we were married. Right, right. Um, but, oh, but I, I mean, you lived at your parents' house, so. That's true. <laughs> Do you want to leave that in? Sure. Okay. Um, <laughs> chapter no eight. No shame, Lisa. <laughs> I mean, it's not shameful. Well, we didn't, like, have overnight times because we both lived at each other's houses, so we weren't really showering at each other's houses. That's correct, yes. That's right, because we're proper. We're proper, yeah, yeah. That's right. Uh, chapter eight, <laughs> the future. Be nice to their friends, even if you don't like them. I say yes with a caveat. Tell your partner if you don't like their friends, because that is a judgment issue. Like, if you think, like, if you find their friends boring or weird, like, not, I don't know, if you find them not interesting, that's, like, one thing. If you think that... Uh, they're the, scumbags. That they're scumbags, you really should say something yeah. because that is a judgment issue. And if your partner goes, like, well, I don't see the scumbagginess, then that might actually be a red flag. Yeah, yeah. You have, that's a source of conversation at the very least. Brad and I have had situations where I haven't liked his friends. Sure. And then those friends become, like, okay, well, we don't hang out as a couple with that particular friend. And sometimes my wonderful character insights end up going like Brad, Brad seeing the light. Yes, that's true, too. But he likes all of my friends because my friends are awesome. I don't know if that's 100% true. <laughs> uh, I accidentally skipped one. Uh, number 77, have an extra toothbrush for them. I would say have an extra toothbrush but you shouldn't have a dentist number of toothbrushes. That implies like that even, even if you're just having a casual hookup, even just for seemliness, you don't want to like feel like, well, I'm just one person in this line of people that like you shouldn't have a, like a little dentist bag with the toothbrush and the toothpaste and maybe a little floss to give them. <laughs> they shouldn't be leaving with goodie bags. Uh, yes. Yeah. So that's it. Do we think any of this stuff is going to come up with Harley and Ivy? I don't know. I don't think so. You don't think so? I, I don't. Mean, to me, like, a lot of that is common sense stuff, but I guess... But some of that stuff was just under-evolved. Like, yeah. the idea of going, like, the gentleman pays, like, that... That can't. That isn't true anymore. Well, so often when you are, uh, especially early dating, you don't know how to behave as a human. Period. And so, like, you know, the towel business doesn't even like come into mind. And because of the way you're raised culturally, you're behaving in a certain fashion that might not be appropriate anymore. Uh, and so there is a struggle. Um, but I, but again, I think I think that's all pretty basic stuff. But to me, like my number one advice to anybody dating is. Be the best version of yourself because ultimately you want to find someone who likes people like you. Yeah, right. Yeah, you don't want to hide anything about your personality. 
And that's what I think I really enjoy about Harley and Ivy. They are both women who are unapologetically themselves. Yeah, for sure. They're uncompromising. They're like, we're villains. We have our own set of principles. And and it is what it is. And take me or leave me. Well, that's what I love, especially from Poison Ivy's point of view, is the principal thing. Because she, she would not call herself a villain in her head, right? Right. But she has a mission. She sees what the world is doing to the environment. And, you know, this, this beautiful, beautiful uh, heaven on Earth. And she will destroy humanity. Well, it justifies a lot of her actions yes. as well. Yes. Like, yes. because she sees humanity as this monster that is um, polluting the green. Yeah, and that's not a goal that Harley necessarily shares. But um, she likes hijinks. But she likes hijinks. And she likes Ivy's company. And she likes Ivy's company quite a bit, yes. So l- let's get let's get into this Denny Mini. Uh, let's dive into Batman, Harley, and Ivy. To the comic book. So it's a three-issue miniseries written by Paul Denny and illustrated by Bruce Tim, inked by Shane uh, Glines, I'm going to say, colored by Lee Loffridge, lettered by Tom Ozarkowski, and published between June and August of 2004, which is more than a decade after they appeared together on Batman the Animated Series. Uh, The story is in the style and tone of the cartoon, but the flirtatiousness and the kink is slightly edgier than what they could have gotten away with on the boob tube. Uh, Nothing too scandalous, but there are naughty bits carefully concealed by shower (laughs) bubbles and word balloons. Uh, You know, Bruce Tim is a cheesecake artist. He's a pinup guy, right? Um, So here's the basic premise as provided by Goodreads. And these three issues, by the way, can be found in the deluxe edition hardcover that also contains various animated style uh, tales written by Denny, but not necessarily illustrated by Bruce Tim. Fun. Here's the plot. The sexy, madcap supervillain duo of Harley Quinn and Poison Ivy plan to take down Batman once and for all in this uproariously funny volume. But first, Harley has to convince Ivy that she has what it takes to be a villain in Gotham City. I feel like the latter half of that little synopsis is not true. I think it's a terrible synopsis. I don't think it really (laughs) tracks these comics at all. Batman is in it, uh, but... He's not really a driving force in the narrative in any way, and that's what I love about this comic. Yeah, they're off having their own adventures. Yeah, yeah. And what's so fun about these three issues is that they could all be read individually, and you'd be totally fine. It's each issue is self-contained. Yeah. Uh, I mean, yes, there's, like, the zombie plant that carries through, but if you read issue two, you'd get a whole story. It's way more next-gen than it is... Star Trek Picard. Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. In the first issue, Bosom Buddies, it opens with Harley and Ivy going to this botanical center to steal a plant. And Harley is like, why Like, why are we risking our butts stealing a plant? And Ivy is like, well, I can distill its essence And then it can be used, it makes people kind of catatonic and you can control them, it turns them into your slave. And Harley is like, but you've already got that power, you have your kiss. Yeah. But the kiss only works on men. Right. And I just... And she says, like, as you know. Like, how does she know? 
Has there been kissing already? No. You don't she think so? knows because she knows. That's that's the power. But um, maybe I would. I mean, I wouldn't. You didn't think there was a little bit of a wink in that exchange? I think the wink is that there is a situation where she doesn't kiss men. I think that that's like. But you don't think that is Paul Denny in any way implying some kind of relationship between the two? I think. Am I just wanting that I to think be you're there? wanting that to be there. I think that her having this superpower of her sexuality only working on men is very interesting because it puts her in this weird relationship with kissing where it's not a tender thing, an emotional thing. It's a tool. Right. And I think that that's going to be interesting when she does kiss Harley or kiss women where it's not a tool anymore. It's a, it's a gesture of love and sexuality. But I don't think that Denny is implying that they've been kissing. I think that, I think it's just well, informative. I'm going to read it that way. Well, you can read it however you want, my love. <laughs> but Ivy is like, well, I'm, I'm not going to kiss everyone in Gotham, which I think was a little slut, Jamie. Oh, yeah, maybe a little, maybe a little. <laughs> so they're doing their heist and the botanical party enters and interrupts their scheme. And Ivy was like, it was your responsibility to figure out what date they wouldn't be here. And yeah. Harley is like, I messed up. Oops. I'm a human. Yeah. And, and this sets up this like tension between the two. There is a power dynamic yes. at play. Yes. Um, Ivy is very dominant. Harley is submissive and subjects herself to punishment. And that's a result of her relationship with Joker. Entirely. Yeah. And so she has kind of put herself into that role with Poison Ivy as well. But I think Poison Ivy may or may not be a safer person to do that with. Oh, I think absolutely. But I also think that Poison Ivy recognizes what's happening and the fact that she is submissive is a reminder of her relationship to Joker. And that also adds to her uh, anger and frustration. Absolutely. There is a safe way to be a submissive without subjecting yourself to somebody's evil whims. Sure. Yes, of course, of course. Uh, but you. But again, that, that's something that you have to talk out with your partner. Absolutely. Uh, turns out Bruce Wayne is part of the Botanical Society. Of course. Batman comes in. Uh, Very conveniently. There is fisticuffs. And in the heat of battle, Harley decides to break the pot, the potted zombie yeah. root Oof. plant over... Batman's head. Yeah, continuing the anger of Poison Ivy directed at Harley. Exactly. To me, it's an example of their different priorities as well, that their principles don't necessarily align because Harley is like, I just want to stay out of Batman's grip so that I can go to my next jewel heist or whatever. Well, then, so she can continue her mission of saving the planet from us wretched people. But I'm saying Harley. Oh, Harley. Harley, Harley. doesn't care about the zombie plant. Right, correct. And, but Ivy, that plant is more important than even getting away from Batman in that moment. Ivy has a cause. Harley does not. And I think that that creates a blind spot for Harley where that love of plants that Ivy has is non-translatable to 
to her. It is a place where maybe Harley can reach an understanding, but will never fully empathize with. Not without serious work. You know, if you uh, couple with somebody mm -hmm. in a partnership, you learn their passions. And, and their principles. And their principles. And you don't necessarily need to share their passions or their principles. I mean, if it's principles, it gets a lot trickier, right? Right. Um, but you do have to empathize and understand and see their point of view. If you're not willing to put yourself in the headspace of your partner, then just get out of the relationship now. Right. If Ivy didn't stop to be mad at Harley for breaking the potted plant, they may have gotten away. And mm. Ivy, in that moment, not um, being able to control her rage... Foiled both of their, like, foiled both of their plans. Yes. Like, not only do you not have your plan, you're also not getting away from Batman because you couldn't control that flame of emotion. Right, but she doesn't, so they end up going to jail or they end up going back to Arkham Asylum. And it's now, like, two weeks have passed since the, the heist. And Ivy is still mad. Yeah, I love these sequences where... Our Ivy is staring out the window and she's imagining all her <laughs> frustration. You get these very like Looney Tunes uh, 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 thought balloons uh, appearing in the panel and you can see her stuffing like a grenade in Harley's mouth. Meanwhile, Harley is trying to act like there's nothing wrong, which I completely identify sure. with because when Brad goes into his broody brood place. I'm sorry. If I play into that mood and I go like, hey, what's wrong? You can talk to me. I'm your partner. Sometimes you get the wrath. Not really wrath, but Brad can kind no, of. No, 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 no. Yeah, yeah. Flare up at that. And so sometimes it's just better to act like your partner is not in a completely cranky mood. I have never imagined a grenade in your mouth, Lisa. That's so sweet. You're, yeah, you're welcome. Uh, and then this sequence leads into a very male fantasy sequence. It's the scene that I alluded to earlier where they're in the showers of Arkham uh, and, and the word balloons and the bubbles are all covering their naughty bits. And like Harley in trying to tease some energy out of Ivy to get her to express something, whips her with a towel. Right. She gives her a little smack on the booty, which in some circumstances would have probably been fine and well-received by Ivy. They're playful. But they're sex sexual with each other. Ivy cannot let go of her anger because right. she hasn't expressed her frustration to Harley yet. Ivy lashes out. She starts yelling, you know, we could have had Gotham in the palm of our hand if you hadn't screwed up. And Harley tries to apologize and say, like, you know, I did not mean to upset you. And if there's like, I promise next time that sh I'll, I'll be different. And Ivy insists that there won't be a next time and that they're finished. You know what this reminded me of is the idea that we've tried to adhere to in our relationship of never going to bed angry. Yeah. And how important it is when you experience frustration or anger towards your partner, you let your partner know, hey, I'm mad and this is why I'm mad. Because if you let that stew the blow up that will ultimately occur because of it is so much larger. It will not be proportionate to. Yeah, yeah. And and I think this could have been cleared up much, much sooner if Ivy had done something else other than staring out into the rain, imagining blowing up Harley's head with a grenade. Right. We had a similar uh, bagel-related situation. We did? 
We did, remember. So uh, Brad loves to eat bagels. Oh, yeah. But I do love bagels. Sesame bagels. They're very, you know, he puts he puts oh, some kind of topping on them, but they're very dry. <laughs> And so when Brad eats bagels, <laughs> it sounds it sounds like he's just struggling to get it down. It does not sound that bad. It sounds it it uh, it's he it's like you know when a uh, a seagull oh, gets no, a French no. fry that's look, just a look, little too big. Look, and so, I think you're super sensitive to mouth sounds. Period. I am, and you don't like being around me while I'm eating. And if I'm eating a bagel that may be drier. <laughs> then another piece of food, uh, I think it heightens your frustration. And um, but I like I was listening to Brad eat this <sighs> bagel, and I'm like, I don't want to leave the room or say anything because I don't want him to feel bad. And so I was like, I am such a good wife by keeping my bagel feelings inside. But then Brad like mentioned like I was eating soup that had kale in it, and I had a little too big of a piece of kale, and I and I knocked my teeth with my spoon. <laughs> and Brad like, is you are you okay? And I'm like, you eat bagels like a monster. <laughs> <laughs> that happened this week. It did. Uh, and uh, I will not eat bagels around you ever again, Lisa. Ever. That's, that's not what I want. I'm just saying that's an that's an example where I was keeping something in. <sighs> Uh-huh. And then my reaction was dis C created dis a paranoia within me. Just a proportion. And I will not eat bagels around you ever again. Oh man, I'm sure that that's not true. You love bagels. I do love bagels. I'm just going to eat them in my office. Back to Harley and Ivy. Uh, because of the incident in the showers, uh, they are separated and placed into solitary confinement. Yes, but directly across from each other. <laughs> but directly across from each other, so they can still share dagger eyes. Harley is trying to apologize. She's made signs and making. Sweet faces. And Ivy is threatening her with garden shears. Yeah. So eventually Ivy has had enough and she's like, I'm out of here. And she uses her kiss on one of the guards and she's skedaddling. And I like that Harley is like, I knew she would help us break out. <laughs> and um, she she looks every at everything that Ivy does in a positive light because it's how she wants it to be. She wants this to be them breaking out of prison she together. She loves and adores Ivy. She does. She really does. Harley hearts Ivy. But we don't know necessarily how reciprocated that is at this point. Mm, yeah. Uh, and, you know, Ivy escapes and she goes into the sewers of Arkham. And it's my two favorite pages in the comic just from an artistic standpoint or three favorite pages that Tim gets all this time to show her escape and she goes like full Lovecraft with the, the sewage or the whatever's growing <laughs> in the sewage Moss. and it comes out and like attacks those cops. I love, love the love, love that splash page. It's so rad. But then the final two pages of the issue is at the dock and Ivy is making her escape via the sea. She's thinking to herself how relieved she is to not have a ditzy partner who's constantly bungling up her master plans. But then Harley shows up on the dock because she was determined to find where Ivy was. And the fact that she can maintain 
the level of concentration to figure out something that even Batman had not figured out. Where is Poison Ivy going to be next? Yeah, she was able to do it, and she got there, and she's excited to be there. Which shows, like, what... Harley's priorities are. Yeah, it's not about the hijinks. She wants to be there with Ivy. Absolutely. And Ivy calls out to her and goes like, Harley, don't you realize that I hate your guts? Powerful words. The word hate. My mom said, never use that word. Uh, Yeah, yeah. Remember when you first called me an ass? I did. I called him an ass. I thought in a fun place. Oh, we're not supposed to use that word. Are you going to bleep that out? I did bleep it out. (gasps) Oh. Editing. I did call Brad an a-hole. And I thought I was being hilarious and spontaneous. uh, But Brad... Took it super serious. I was so mad. I was so upset. How dare you? I was indignant. <laughs> uh, but I, now we I, call each other a-holes all the time. I know. I <laughs> This is the way that you turn your partner's principles to your own principles. And my principles is swear all of the time. <laughs> it's the funniest thing you can do. Yeah. But Ivy says, I hate your guts. And Harley replies, well, gee, yeah, but you're still my best friend. And I figure that despite everything, I was your best friend, too. And this pulls Ivy's heartstrings, and she throws Harley a life preserver. Like, in this first issue, I do see that they have a bond. They have a dependence on each other. At this point, do we know if it's healthy? Well, if they're going to continue, they need to work out some things. Yeah, probably not healthy. I do think, well, I mean, it's... I think healthier than what Harley has experienced in the past uh, and could, you know, I don't know if I, I don't know if you finish this issue and you go like, I want them as a couple, but if they work on it, they could be a couple. I think the major difference between Joker and Ivy is that I don't find Ivy malicious. Mm. She's not necessarily in control of her emotions. I don't think she always treats Harley with, respect and dignity, but I don't think that she is exploiting Harley or abusing Harley. And the way we've seen Harley in Batman, the animated series uh, with the Joker is it's hard to say that that version of the Joker loves Harley in any way. She feels like a tool to him. Right. And he enjoys her uh, obsession of him. And that's why he keeps her around. Right. Where Ivy and Harley genuinely like each other. They have a ton in common. And clearly they have an attraction towards each other that they don't both fully understand. Yeah. Yeah, I agree with that. The second issue kicks off with a news broadcast uh, from Costa Verde, where we are hearing a reporter discuss how that the president for life, a.k.a. dictator Juan Ceballos, has accepted donations to preserve the rainforest, but at the same time, rumors are showing that mercenaries have been hired to burn the rainforest down and get rid of any protesters, any environmentalists who are snooping around. We turn the page... Before we turn the page... Yes. um, The news narrative ends with... It's clear that Costa Verde is a country in desperate need of heroes. But where these saviors will come from, no one can say. That's the thesis statement of this particular issue. Here come Ivy the heroes. and Harley are going to be the heroes. Yeah. And then you turn the page and you get another splash. 
and it's splash indeed. It's splash indeed. <laughs> it's Ivy being thrown against a brick wall, uh, and we see that we're now inside a Roger Corman women in prison movie where uh, Harley and Ivy have been shackled and are being abused by the guards. And that opening page, Ivy's legs are, are just completely so spread. <laughs> yeah. yeah, Bruce Timm's having a good time. He is. Um, cartoony violence? I don't know. Well, that's the weird thing about this particular comic because it stems from the animated series cartoon which was very g or at least pg i mean there's some violence in there's that a cartoon. lot of suggestive stuff because we just rewatched a whole bunch of episodes and, in and preparation. there are there are suggestions but it's like it's pretty subtle we don't get to see the why of a woman's but, panty but that's the thing when you get to this comic which has less eyes on it and certainly less studio execs less warner brothers people watching it uh it, it's much more mature, flagrant, and you know, male gazy. Yeah, but I would be lying if I said I did not like it. Yeah, <laughs> like, it, I find this to be entertaining cheesecake. Yeah, but I wouldn't be passing it to an eleven-year-old boy. Uh, I guess not. Maybe it depends on the eleven-year-old boy. If it was Brad, he would have this <laughs> and more. Eleven-year-old B- Brad was very special. Yeah, he sure was. He was like the Mozart of looking at boobs. <laughs> yeah, yeah. A no. prodigy. Uh, okay, That's what I'm saying. Okay, okay. I hear you. I hear you. I'm what? just saying that the appeal of the Denny Tim book is that it pushes the animated series content a little further. A little bit more mature. Yeah. What I think is important about this scene, this fight in the jail cell, is that is the expression on Harley's face when she comes to the defense of Ivy. We associate Harley with having so much fun when she's committing violence. She's always smiling and laughing and bantering. But in this scene, when she goes for that toilet plunger, she is mad. Mm. She is angry. It's butt-kicking time, right? Yeah, don't don't come after her lady. That's right. Yeah, I, I love that. And they get the guards down. Ivy's going to poison them, but then... Here come the police. They break it up, and they actually bring Harley and Ivy to the dictator, Juan Caballos. Turns out it was President Ceballos who had them arrested in the first place. Jerk. Shocker. While they're having audience with him, Harley puts it together that this is actually a shakedown and whispers to Ivy too loudly, too loudly, (laughs) that he wants in on the zombie route. And he comes at them but Harley tricks him into kissing Ivy, and now he is under her control. And uh, Ivy goes, you know, Harl, you're not half the imbecile you seem to be, which is words of affirmation, love language. It's also nagging, yeah. <laughs> which is not kind. Not kind. But I think for Ivy, that's a high compliment. Well, once we get to this point, they're having a good time together. They've uncovered this conspiracy. They've figured out that Juan Caballos is responsible for hiring Slash and Burn to burn down the rainforest. They have a goal. They have an enemy. And they seem to be genuinely enjoying each other's company. Mm, Yes. After Ivy gets the zombie route, she has this opportunity to commune with the vines, and she is truly in her happy place. Meanwhile, Harley is covered in bugs and miserable, 
And Ivy is like, cheer up, baby. I've got the root. We'll be back in Gotham in no time. And Harley is like whimpering, like, you promise? And I feel like when Ivy is in Gotham, it's like how Harley feels when she's in the jungle. The jungle. Yeah, yeah, where I agree. she has more access to the green and to plant life. But she does still choose to go back to Gotham. She could stay and just send Harley back. Yes, but she also knows that the, the, the real problem is back on the other side. It yeah. is in Gotham, in cities like Gotham. And maybe Harley is something that makes Gotham a little bit more tolerable for her, even when she is being insufferable. I think it's also extremely telling, obviously, that they have a connection because how do they leave Costa Verde? Uh, they use Juan Caballos, because he's still under Ivy's spell, to set up a botanical reserve in Ivy and Quinzel's name, right? So mm -hmm. it's a partnership. It's really nice to see... Harley and Ivy at peak functionality, especially yes. after the last issue where they were so much at odds. And only in that, you know, she reluctantly allowed Harley back in her life, but now they're together. And Batman recognizes it, and Alfred recognizes it in the last page that, hey, they've actually done some good here. Alfred sees the good that they did on their holiday, but Batman is like, but if they ever set foot in Gotham again. <laughs> He's a one-track mind. He is. He's not open-minded and forgiving like the Gullicksons no. or Alfred. No, no. Maybe there's something about being in Gotham that gives the villain a little bit, little bit more pressure, a little bit more stress. That might be what's affecting because Ivy. Because of Batman and the presence of Batman? Or yes, the presence of all the myriad of rogues that exist in that city? Because of Batman and his existence, they are the balancing of that scale, right? So because there's a superhero, there is this pressure, if you're even slightly villainous, to put a costume on and act like a loon. Uh-huh, uh-huh, uh Yeah. I mean, it is one of those things where, like, is he a cure or is he, you know, just part of the disease? Is he just furthering the spread of their villainy? Maybe if Ivy wasn't in Gotham, she would be more like Swamp Thing. yeah. Batman defines their roles. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Cool. Cool. So third issue, final issue. Uh, it starts off with the Joker getting punched in the face. How fun. But not really because it's an actor and it's a Hollywood movie set. They're making a Batman movie. And Harley has stumbled into it and got utterly confused. So yeah. she started being the snot out of some poor actor. And then we get an immediate flashback to when they were hiding out in a hotel a couple days ago and Harley has her like face glued to the television and she's not watching Animaniacs. I can't remember what they call it, but it's Acromegliacs? a Yeah, so it's a reference to Animaniacs, which is the cartoon series that Paul Denny wrote on as well. Uh, and Ivy, uh, she wants her to pull her face out of the television because she is acting like a zombie. Yeah, Ivy sees her as not making herself useful. Like, why don't you try to help my master plan by knocking over some liquor stores and getting cash because we're going to need cash. And she uses a very triggering phrase, which is she doesn't feel that Harley is pulling her weight. Yeah, boom. And just leeching off of her, which Harley takes offense. Yeah, obviously. I, I understand. <laughs> but I think this is a core issue 
in their relationship. Ivy sees Harley as a person who lacks ambition and sees herself as this mastermind. And she doesn't understand, well, I, I'm a criminal mastermind. Why aren't you serving me and helping me? Which I think adds to their power imbalance. Like, I am the brains of this outfit. Why aren't you just doing things the way I want them done? But then their argument is interrupted by Access Hollywood, and we learn that they are making a Harley and Ivy movie, and Harley objects to the actress that's playing her. Ivy tries to pretend that she doesn't care, but when she hears that the actress who was in this perfume commercial that used these special flowers, she becomes enraged, and the two decide to make a pit stop in Hollywood before returning to Gotham so that they can basically do to this movie what happened to the producers, right? Right. Like, they decide to do a like a dry run of the master plan with the zombie route, taking over this movie, tanking it and skimming off the top of the millions that the movie is being right, made for. Right. And and so they go to Hollywood and they do just that. They convince the producers through the use of the zombie route to give them the reins and they start making their crappy, crappy version of the Harley and Ivy movie. But then Harley kind of falls in love with the process of making this terrible film. Ivy sees how inspired her friend is, and then her priorities change. Once they've skimmed off enough money, and Ivy is like, okay, well, it's time to get out. It's time to run with, with our millions, and Harley begs for one more day, and Ivy gives her that one more day to finish making her film, which to me proves that Ivy is invested in Harley's happiness in a way that the Joker never was and never could be. Mm, yeah, so true, so true. And yeah, I mean, I think I come into this three issues already on Team Harley and Ivy, but when you if you take your uh, baggage away, if you just take these three issues as they are, it's in this moment, it's in this issue where you really, really just want to continue reading their adventures. It's nice to see people fall in love, even even really terrible people. Yeah, and the way that these really terrible people are going to, you know, climax their movie is that Harley is going to just destroy a ton of Batman, and they need to get all these stuntmen together and just one after another, just Batman death, Batman death, Batman death. And the entire time this is happening, Ivy is having a profound feeling of foreboding. Right, and it, it climaxes for her in a dream sequence where she is... Uh, being attacked, assaulted by a Harley Quinn-like Frankenstein monster, and she's being thrown off of the windmill, like the James Whale windmill, uh, and she turns into a dummy as she plummets. She hits the sail of the windmill, crack, wakes up, and freaks out And her immediate reaction, and they wake up next to each other in bed, and Ivy punches Harley right in the face, in the kisser. Like, I completely forgot that this page happened because nothing really comes of it. Yeah, I mean, it's a gag. It's a really violent gag. And I think it's an excuse for Bruce Tim to draw a Frankenstein Harley Quinn. And that's really the only reason it's there. I just don't understand what the dream is trying to say exactly. 
that Harley Quinn is taking over. Like uh, she is becoming a monster, but it is showing that Harley Quinn is, you know, the power of being the director is going to her head. Oh, I guess maybe it does like it does tap into some of Ivy's insecurities going like, well, if I'm not the person who is in control, then clearly I'm the dummy. And so how does she respond when she wakes up from this nightmare by punching her in the face and reaffirming her dominance in the relationship in a violent, gross way? Thank you for putting that together for me. Because I did not catch that, but that's that's a really good observation. It's brutal. It is brutal. Now... There is a Batman actor, a stuntman, who is like an Arnold Schwarzenegger type, except he has like blonde hair. Mm -hmm. He's a real beefcake, and Harley has taken a liking to him. And the next day, she sets him up to die a fiery death on a Batcopter and ties him up. And uh, he says, uh, excuse, please, but uh, you, the, the stunt is safe. And she's like, yeah, yeah, it's safe. Don't worry about it. Let's go destroy this guy. But it turns out that that... that uh, Austrian-accented individual is not an actor, but is legitimately Bruce Wayne, Batman. Love and, it. And he has snuck his way onto the set so that he can take down Harley and Ivy. Yes. And what I love is when you realize that and you go back to the earliest panels of this actor, the profile, the nose, is clearly the Bruce Tim, Bruce Wayne, just with like these little pinprick eyes and the blonde hair. It's so good. It's a great reveal. Yeah, and so the climax of the movie, uh, like Harley is so brain-addled by the whole movie-making experience that she can't even process that the real Batman is on set. And, I mean, Ivy has to beg her to shoot him, which she attempts but misses, and uh, there's a big explosion, and it ends with Batman carrying them off to prison once again. Once again, and the comic ends with Harley and Ivy back at Arkham Asylum, except that the movie ends up being a huge box office hit. Right. It just, like, they had to release it because they had poured so much money into it. And, uh, yeah, and the punchline is... Harley receiving an Oscar. It's also the producer's punchline. Like, that's how the producers go. So, yeah, yeah way to go, Bruce Tibb and uh, Paul Diddy for aping that film uh, in a delightful way. So cute. Uh, so that brings us to the end of Batman, Harley, and Ivy, the three-issue miniseries. Uh, overall, I had a really good time with it. I do think that it is problematic in a lot of places. It's a little weird. It's a little awkward. I mean, again, that dream sequence in particular, you're like, ah, I don't like this. Uh, I get what you're doing, but I don't like it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, like violence in a romantic relationship or any relationship is dicey. But Lisa, what did you end up thinking? Like, how did you feel about Batman, Harley, and Ivy overall? I found it to be really cute. Um, we've seen on Twitter that some people don't feel like this is the best entree into these yeah. characters. People object to the representation of the kind of dominant role, the like the the punchy-punchy the, the antagonism between the two. But I did get a sense of true caring between those two characters. I didn't think that there was like a ton of sexual tension or sexual energy but, like, that kinship was there, and that intrigued me. I like seeing them together. I love the characters as ideas so much, mm -hmm. and, I, and I like this universe, and like I said, I like how it's a little bit pushed uh, into the PG-13, almost our zone that the cartoon couldn't do, uh, and, and the dynamic is interesting, and if explored further, 
could be really, really cool. I think I, there's a lot of potential just in these three issues for these versions of these two characters. In the cartoon, Ivy is not only this environmentalist, but she's this tremendous feminist. Yes. And she is really um, motivated by creating some equality, even in the world of villains. And I hope that, that we get to see a little bit more of that side of her character. I, I hope that that side of her character um, is something that is consistent on many platforms, because I, I think that that's fun. Now we've reached the point, though, what have we learned about ourselves, about Harley and Ivy, uh, about how it ties in with the Schwartz and uh, Mosley book? To me, in these three issues from Harley and Ivy, I've it really helps me to realize that when you are in a couple that is committed to each other, you really do learn what your principles are. Like at the beginning of the the book, in that first issue, we saw that Harley's priority is getting away from Batman at all costs so you can go on to the next heist. But we see that Ivy's principle is that the plant comes first. Mm -hmm. But then later, when they're in a more of a heisty situation, for Ivy, Harley's happiness comes first over the success of the heist. Mm. So I, I feel like when you enter a two-person community, there is this kind of dismantling and rebuilding of priorities, which I think they're really going through in these three issues. Mm -hmm. You know, like my... my Thing that I keep going back to with this couple is the idea of recognizing that there is something special about that other person, leaning into that uh, and embracing it. And, and, you know, like who knows where it can go. Uh, and there might be things that aggravate you about the other person, but if there's enough positive, go to the positive, explore the positive, let that person into your life. And I think that's what you're seeing from Ivy's point of view over the course of these three issues. Clearly, Harley needs somebody like Ivy and is attracted to Ivy's um, mission and power and confidence. And she likes the affirmation when Ivy gets it. Yeah. You know, and, and, and so when you see something interesting about a person, explore it. Yeah. Yeah. But so don't be an effing idiot follow some rules, pay attention, and, uh, you know. And don't make any romantic moves until you are definitely on a date. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Perfect. There is one other way I want to bring back Schwartz and Mosley is proposing a scenario. Who walks whom to their car? Do you oh, think that... Oh, in this that, relationship? Yeah, in this relationship. Who do you think is more likely to be victimized? Does... Ivy walk Harley to her car or does Harley walk Ivy to her car? I mean, as we see in these three issues, I think Ivy walks Harley to her car. I agree. Yeah. And she should get into her ride share second or they should share a ride. Yes. Uh, yeah. Okay. All right. We're in agreement. Yeah. 
And finally, like the last thing that I would just reiterate to all couples out there, if something is infuriating you about your partner, uh, talk about it sooner rather than later. I thought I was being such a saint. I'm like, I'm taking the bagel thing to the grave. But, He'll never know. But that bagel thing, that that came up in the same afternoon. Like you suffered through my bagel eating sounds. I made a comment about the spoon. That all happened in a day. Not to you, it happened oh. in a day. I've hated the way that you've <laughs> oh, eaten bagels for years. Okay. So don't harbor th for years. 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 Yeah. Well, it's become more frequent don't, as you've uh, eaten more bagels. I love bagels. Uh, <laughs> okay. Well, don't harbor for years about the way your lover eats bagels, Lisa. Jeez. Uh, okay. So uh, time to end this. Time to get on to next week. We're continuing the relationship of Harley and Ivy. Although we are going to drop another episode at the end of this week where we're having an interview with cartoonist Mark Jackson. You may remember in our last Rogan Gambit uh, issue, we talked about Jackson's Magnum P.I. comic book and Spoo Kids, and he's agreed to join us for another Creator Corner conversation, kind of like what we did with Cuddles and Rage when they were talking about Bites of Terror. We're really looking forward to it. Really looking forward to it. He's got a new YouTube live stream show. Go subscribe to it. Mark makes comics, and uh, tune into that episode. Now, when we return to Harley and I, Ivy, we're jumping back to the DC Universe proper. We're leaving Batman the Animated Series, and we're going to the Harley Quinn solo book, written by Carl Kessel and illustrated by Terry and Rachel Dodson. And which issues will we be reading? We're going to tackle the Welcome to Metropolis arc, which is issues 14 through 19 of the solo series. Nice. Yeah. You can find it in a trade paperback that contains even more issues, which is called... Harley Quinn, welcome to Metropolis. But Lisa, we are not doing Schwartz and Mosley anymore. What is our next guru? Our new relationship guru will be sex advice columnist and author Lindsay King Miller using her book, Ask a Queer Chick, a guide to sex, love, and life for girls who dig girls. Feels way more appropriate. Feels way more appropriate. I'm excited. I'm so looking forward to continuing the conversation of Harley and Ivy. Me too. I just can't wait to see how my relationship to Harley and Ivy evolves over the course of these episodes. Because I know with Rogan Gambit, after the first episode, I was like, I really am not into these two. <laughs> yeah. But by the end, I was in love with them and in love with the idea of them being together. And now Harley and Ivy, I'm going in pretty blind. I haven't read a lot of like Batman books that or Batman universe type books that didn't have Batman front and center. So far, I'm really digging these two and I just can't wait to see where it goes. Yes, indeed. What if I end up hating them? Anything could happen. Anything could happen. Anything could happen, Lisa. I don't think you will. I don't think you will. <laughs> uh, but Lisa, where can our friends find you online? Where can they send their words of affirmation to you? That's so sweet. I'm always accepting words of affirmation at Sidewalk Siren on Instagram and Twitter. Don't forget, you can email the podcast by writing to cbccpodcast at gmail.com. We want to hear from you. And Brad, 
Where can our listeners send the words of affirmation to you? You can find me on all social medias at MouthDork. Don't forget to leave us an iTunes review on iTunes. That's where iTunes reviews are left. Don't leave them on the street. Yeah, no, no. Do it only on iTunes. (laughs) Don't leave them with your mail carrier. No. And we're also now, I'm I'm a little like blushing about this, but we're on Kofi. That's right. So you can find us at ko-fi.com backslash CBCC podcast. And if you want to buy us a cup of coffee, we'll, we'll accept it. We'll greatly appreciate it. And you can commit to this podcast by following us on Instagram and Twitter at CBCC podcast. And by subscribing to us on Podbean, Spotify, and iTunes. Why not subscribe on all three? Yeah, why not? If you're barely on your Spotify, just follow us and then and then just... Have a tea. Yeah, have a tea. Go off into the distance. Yeah, okay. It costs you nothing. It's like making a reservation. It's free. <laughs> but I want those iTunes reviews. Yeah, we do. We, <laughs> cer- we certainly do. <laughs> so until next time, folks, keep your love tank full. And your psychic rapport open. Doopy doopy. <laughs> <laughs>